Welcome to the Farcast, coming to you every week with insiders and experts to give you insight into the changing economic world. And now, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. It is April the 22nd. Uh, I can't even remember now. I think we're probably six, seven eight weeks into social isolation and and distancing and working from home and all of those uh, good things that are trying to keep the nation healthy. Georgia is starting to reopen, and we're going to find out if it's too much too soon. Everybody's watching. We're trying to see what happens in New York. It does seem the uh, rate and number of deaths are beginning to decline, uh, peak anyway, still a horrible situation in New York and other places around the country are indeed holding their breath. Markets have had an absolutely resilient run going through last week, uh, beginning of this week, Monday and Tuesday, with the collapse of the price of oil, stock prices have gone lower uh, two days in a row. We'll see if that's a trend that stays with us as markets begin to focus on earnings. As we look uh, at markets and we look at the economy, we continue to see a remarkable disconnect between the economy and what's happening in the economy uh, and what's happening in markets. The economic data uh, continue uh, to be uh, bad, of course. Uh, Unemployment claims continue to rise well over 22, 23, 24, 25 million people unemployed All of the job gains since the 2008-2009 Great Recession, all of those job gains uh, have been erased. Um, And so how long will it take these folks to get back to work? Government, for its part, has thrown a lot of money at this problem. The Federal Reserve, over $2 trillion. The federal government, uh, the same, over $2 trillion in pledged money. And it appears that the Senate last night has approved another almost half a trillion dollars of spending for this PPP payroll protection plan program that's also going to extend to hospitals uh, that need help. Uh, The government's doing what the government can do in providing money uh, to the economy. So when you see this great recession and you think, okay, U.S. GDP is going to shrink 30 percent, maybe 40%, 40% according to J.P. Morgan. And if, J, if, if we do see that uh, decline in, in GDP, according to J.P. Morgan, that lack of productivity uh, and growth, we sort of think might be, um, uh, you know, alleviated a little bit by the, uh, by the government money, all of this uh, cash that's being thrown at the economy and at markets. The problem is can the cash get where it needs to be? And by that, I mean the U.S. is a 70% uh, 70% uh, uh, consumer-driven GDP. 70% of the U.S. economy is driven by the U.S. consumer. And you've heard me say this for years. Whenever you're, if any business you knew of depended 70% on anything, you would pay close attention to that anything. Uh, you have to pay close attention to the health of the consumer, A lot of the consumers are unemployed. Consumers are staying at home. I don't know about you folks. Uh, I'm working from my home. Uh, I'm not spending any money. 
there's nothing for me to go out and buy. I can't go into shops. I can't go anywhere. I'm not traveling. I'm not flying. We're not going to restaurants. Uh, we're not, I'm not spending any money. So things need to open up a bit. But all of that consumer spending really isn't happening. And you also have to think that people aren't driving their cars, so they're not wearing them out. And they're not buying all that much more gasoline, but they're not buying car parts, and they don't have to go out and buy new cars, and so on and so forth. So I've been asked a number, number of times what it's going to take uh, for this great economic reset. What's it going to take for us to, to really restart the economy? And I think it means that the world recovering from significant economic contraction is going to look a lot different uh, than the one we were experiencing in January. So the economy we had in January with 3.5% unemployment and everything else is not the world we're going to return to in a year or two now as things get ramped back up. It's going to look different. The contraction in the economy, the contracting of the economy is still occurring. It's not complete. So that's a fact. That's not an opinion. So the disease numbers are still increasing. Overall disease numbers still increasing. And so is unemployment. And mortgage payments aren't being made in greater numbers. And rents aren't getting paid. So the step one for, for the beginning of a recovery is we have to hit bottom. We have to contract to that point of inelasticity. And this is when the rubber band can't be stretched anymore. Step two is when the pent-up demand begins to drive incrementally increasing spending. So, uh, uh, of ourselves, we have 320 million people who need to be fed, clothed, and housed. Uh, and those, a lot of those 320 million are, are going to be economically wounded uh, from lack of job and income and other things as they've been furloughed through this period. But uh, many will go out and want to buy clothes and they will continue to buy food, those who can, and they will have a demand that will surge back. So we need that demand uh, to increase spending. Number three, production and capacity utilization uh, will increase and then hiring will increase, which means that people who are running donut shops with half staff, making half the number of donuts they typically do, will, as customers start coming back to buy donuts, uh, begin to uh, add more people and begin to produce uh, full-time donuts, and they'll hire those people back. That same thing is going to happen in shoe factories and automobile factories, other manufacturing, other areas. Certainly, we're not going to see a resurgence in demand in a couple of industries like healthcare. Healthcare is already at full tilt. Uh, a lot of the tech companies are at full tilt. As we go through, and then when you go through that, you'll see, you know, wages begin to rise again, God willing, and that probably is going to be at least two to three years away, but it'll happen again. So throughout this process, there's a counterbalance, there's a dampening from all of the debt payments. So everybody who gets some money uh, in the consumer is still got to pay for their car loans and credit cards and back rent and mortgages. And money spent on debt service, paying your loan off, isn't being spent uh, out at TGI Fridays uh, or Walmart. So uh, it's not out there being uh, creating more demand. And finally, after severe periods like this, 
And, and we saw this after the Great Depression. We saw this after even 9-11. We saw it after 2000 and 2000, uh, 2008 and nine. Savings rates go up. Consumers who kind of got burned without much cash, think about those depression babies who really uh, like the idea of money in a mattress. They like money. They don't want debt. They don't want to buy anything they can't pay for in cash. Uh, they're worried they're going to lose it. And so we see savings rates go up. Same thing about paying down debt. If I take my money that I make uh, at work and put it in my savings account, I'm not spending it. So what's good for me, it's called the paradox of thrift. What's good for me in repairing my balance sheet, which is, which is good and makes the economy healthier long term, does not help it make it healthier short term because uh, I'm not out spending on stuff and I'm not creating that demand. Most important, this is going to take time. And the notion of an overnight return to a robust economy, in my opinion, is not realistic. But it will happen. We will get through this. So keep the faith. The return to growth is coming. Return to growth is coming. But I think it will not be as quick as this sort of look through, hey, the disease is peaking, everything's fine, now let's everybody go back to a restaurant. Uh, I don't know how you're feeling about going back to a restaurant or getting back on an airplane. In fact, Phil LeBeau at CNBC this morning reported that a lot of people economically have said uh, that they can't afford to fly. They're going to put those uh, flights and those travel plans on hold for at least a year because they can no longer afford the luxury of those tickets. We, we've kind of forgotten that flying is something of a luxury, uh, certainly. Those of us who, you know, I'm on, I'm, I mean, I, a, a, a bad week for me is a, uh, is a five-bed week. I travel so much. If I'm in five different beds in a week, that's a bad week. If I'm on six, more than five airplanes a week, uh, five airplanes is not a good week for me. Uh, if I'm on six, I mean, it's just, th th that's not fun, and it does not feel at all luxurious when you have to do it for work, but I'm sure everybody gets that part. But uh, anyway, uh, I'm one of those business travelers that is good for the airline industry, and I will get back on an airplane. Uh, I, I, you know, I'll be very careful. I'll get back on the airplane, and we'll get going again. Um, but some of this has changed permanently. Uh, these Zoom meetings or team meetings on Microsoft platforms, uh, we're all getting used to them. Uh, it's becoming a more acceptable way of doing business. It's not just those tech guys who say, oh, well, I'll, you know, we can conference online. Everybody's going to be doing that more. This could be a long comeback. It was three years, remember, ladies and gentlemen, three years after 9-11 that airline volumes returned to pre-9-11 levels. Uh, that seems like a reasonable model uh, to follow this time. We have a great forecast for you this morning. Our senior political analyst, Dan Mahaffey, is going to be, is going to be with us. And then <clears throat> a uh, far-cast fan favorite, uh, Mona Mahijan, is the U.S. investment strategist from Allianz Global Advisors. And we're excited to have on a uh, U.S. investment strategist who's part of a global investment firm. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of them are, but Allianz in particular, global investment firm, uh, certainly with a global and a particularly European perspective. Hear what Mona has to say. She's absolutely brilliant. Dan Mahaffey's brilliant. We're going to listen to Dan Mahaffey right now when we come back on the Farcast.
Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. I'm Harry Jennings, producer for the show. We love bringing you the show every week and bringing you a deeper look at what moves the economic and investing landscape. We also produce a daily podcast, the Farcast 3-Minute Morning Brief. Each morning the U.S. markets are open, we bring you just the numbers that you need. Markets, headlines, commodities, and futures, all in the time it takes to brew a cup of coffee. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform and get a head start on the markets every day. And now, back to Michael Farr and the Farcast. Welcome back to the Farcast, and now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast, April 22nd, 2020. Uh, joined now by my great friend and our senior political analyst, our brilliant Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress in Washington, D.C. Uh, Dan's with us every week as we try to filter through uh, what's happening on Wall Street, Washington, and across the globe. Uh, Dan, welcome back. We're so glad you're with us. Thank you, Michael. Good to be back here with you. It looks like the House is about ready to vote today on this $484 billion coronavirus relief package, uh, $310 billion into a key loan fund designed to keep employees on small company payrolls. The initial, uh, I guess, $350 billion in the program uh, is all gone. That was part of the $2.2 trillion rescue bill. Um, mm -hmm. And so this is another on the top of the two point two trillion. This is another four hundred eighty four billion. We're being very careful, Dan. It looks like we don't want to say a half a trillion. Um, yes, exactly. Uh, like when you're when you're pricing something that forty nine ninety nine is not fifty dollars. They really yeah. want to avoid getting over that 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 headline number it has to stay below uh, half a trillion. This bill also allocates sixty billion for small lenders and another sixty billion. For small businesses, I'm, these seem to be like a lot of parsing. Also mm -hmm. uh, goes to some hospital support, $75 billion Correct. for hospital aid and, and $25 billion for virus testing. I wonder, mm -hmm. is all of this just wings its way through if the president's a little frustrated he couldn't get 5 or $6 billion for a wall over in Mexico? But, <laughs> boy, plenty, plenty of money now. Dan, tell us what this means in Washington, what the— temperature is on Washington. Yeah. Are we getting a little more oil in the world of, uh, I mean, uh, lubrication in the world of bipartisanship <laughs> or no? I, I, I don't think there's any love lost between the leaders. And, and certainly a lot of this was was hashed out between uh, McConnell, Pelosi and uh, Mnuchin seems again to be doing most of the uh, negotiation work because you can't get a, a clear line of communication between uh, McConnell and Pelosi, as well as the uh, you know, the questions being what the White House uh, priorities are any given day. Uh, but look, Democrats are, are saying, you know, they're they're happy with this because it's, it's doubled nearly what the initial uh, Republican offers were. Uh, Republicans also have held the line on, uh, you know, you don't see any support for state and local government there, um, although that's going to be uh, certainly next up. And, and I think, too, the, the question becomes, uh, you know, as we've seen the controversy over you know, mom and pop restaurants don't get it, but Ruth's Chris uh, does or or major companies that had existing banking relationships are getting money. Uh, Congress, you know, people are going to blame the banks and those companies, but also Congress. Remember, they wrote the original bill. They've uh, they put those incentives in there for banks and companies to operate different ways. Are they going to try and fix that in some of the language? We'll 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 see on that. 
but also uh, it's a reminder as we've seen this go on. I think that next tranche of small business money is is just going to be as quickly gobbled up, uh, given the depths of the economic uh, crisis we're facing. Um, and and there's going to be some more big numbers coming down the pipe when you look at uh, what what SBA will need, as well as when we finally get to the the next round, which I think is going to be uh, significant support for state and local governments needs to be in the next one. Uh, you know, so this is another half a trillion dollars going out to small businesses. Did you see the the uh, cheesecake restaurant in New York? Uh, the guy who took five million dollars. Uh, and then did not pay it to his people and had them apply for unemployment anyway. And cert- uh, yeah, and certainly uh, s- some will do that because if you don't, uh, if you don't keep the workers, it becomes a, uh, you know, the, it becomes a two-year loan at one percent. So there's there's business people who are going to look at the, those incentives, and and certainly some of the numbers too, where you see uh, that you know the extra six hundred dollars a week in federal support for unemployment. But how long are states uh, going to be able to pay that, and how long is that money going to last? Um, because as we look to at the unemployment numbers, it's interesting. The way they grow, is it actually a reflection of the actual unemployment rate or simply the capacity that states have to record this in their unemployment rolls? Uh, if it seems to be going uh, Dan, up the Dan, same number- I'm gonna I'm going to interrupt for one second because I think that is, I mean, you know, I, I think you and I are on the same page there, but we actually have some breaking news, which we typically don't in a recorded uh, podcast, folks, but we do have some breaking news. Uh, Donald Trump, President Donald Trump just tweeted uh, that he has instructed the U.S. Navy to shoot down and destroy any and all Iranian gunboats if they harass our ships at sea. That's his tweet that was just that just went out two minutes ago. I'm going to read it one more time. Donald, President Donald J. Trump, at real Donald Trump, uh, tweeted, I have instructed the United States Navy to shoot down and destroy any and all Iranian gunboats if they harass our ships at sea. Dan, where is that coming from and why now, do you think, please? Uh, just, I mean, I understand yeah. I'm catching you a bit flat-footed here. Uh, this is welcome to live broadcasting. <laughs> yeah, well, live recorded podcasting. Um, yeah, I think, look, the, we, we've continued to see harassment of, of ships uh, in the in the Persian Gulf. The, the Iranians are known for their tactics with small boats uh, to harass shipping, to harass Navy vessels. I think there are some in the administration that think with the coronavirus and and the price of oil where it is, the Iranian government is uh, particularly vulnerable. Uh, but let's as we've seen in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and other places, you, you cannot underestimate their ability to. Uh, retaliate in other asymmetrical uh, means, be it militias, terrorist groups, uh, things like that. So it's 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 something to keep an eye on as it as it certainly escalates. But I I don't know if by tweeting this publicly he's trying to establish some sort of uh, deterrent or uh, you know the you can definitely tell it's off the cuff though because shooting down a ship is an interesting uh, uh, turn of phrase. Uh, it is indeed. Uh, I'm going to move back to what's going on in the U.S. uh, with the uh, shutdown, basically, of the Mm -hmm. economy and the uh, ongoing COVID-19 crisis. The uh, governor of Georgia uh, has said that Georgia is going to be is is opening for business. Mm -hmm. Um, Why? why, uh, And and we've we've also seen the governor of Florida say he's going to open some of the beaches and he's got a plan for for reopening too. These are two Republican governors. What's going on there in those states? What does that mean politically? Mm 
uh, and and I guess the, the risks are clear. But tell us the way you see it, please. Well, I think there's certainly the pressure uh, among many in, pol- in Republican and conservative policy circles that uh, believe that you know the the worst of this is past us, even though the uh, you know the numbers still are are not uh, not great. Forty five thousand dead total. Uh, I think 2,900 roughly died yesterday. So in one day, more Americans died from coronavirus than uh, the entire Afghanistan war. Uh, but we we have the uh, uh, this sense that we need to do something to get the economy going, and that perhaps with uh, social distancing measures, uh, you know, allowing only a couple people in a shop at a time, or a barber shop can only see one customer at a time, and everyone has to be masked. They're they're trying to do this as a as a risk mitigation strategy and. And, and frankly, we may also have, uh, in many ways, we're going to have a, a sort of 50 different study groups when it comes to uh, how the, the economy reopens. This, this could be interesting to see from an epidemiological uh, standpoint how, this, uh, how these numbers shake out. But uh, it's going to be in contrast to where you've seen other governors. Uh, you know, it's almost like the, the athletic conferences. You have, a, you have the Big East, you have the Big Ten. Well, you have a East Coast governor saying they're going to work together. You've got the Midwestern governors saying they're going to work together. So you're going to have some coordinated actions. But I think the these southern states and, and uh, Republican governors are making uh, uh, leaning a little more towards the economy uh, over health when they when they think about the uh, risk reward calculus. Right. All right, Dan. Uh, we're seeing all of these uh, things happen on Capitol Hill. Uh, we're also coming into an election. We've got about a minute left, Dan. Uh, we have not heard from Vice President Biden, who is the presumptive nominee of the Democratic Party for the presidential election in November. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us how that tell us how not seeing him really is. Uh, is that is that a good is that a, is that a good strategy or a bad strategy? And uh, if this vote were tomorrow, how would you call it? I think the it's a, the strategy is tough because uh, Biden is it's it's definitely this virus story. Uh, outshines anything he can do. You know, there's no real authority he has to act on this because it's the the Democratic uh, governors and some Republican governors who are in the lead on that. Uh, I think the biggest issue for him and his strategy right now is this really puts a damper on his ability to fundraise right now, uh, and he needed to get okay. the, the get the kitty filled. Uh, the the thing though with the uh, if you had to look at it today, uh, a very close election. I think Biden has the edge though because. Uh, seniors and other key demographics, we're seeing support for the president really start to go down there. Okay. All right. Uh, seniors, uh, uh, why, why, why are the seniors uh, concerned about, I mean, because seniors did, I thought that they had uh, supported President Trump in the last election pretty strongly. Yeah, they supported him 53 to uh, 41, roughly, in the, in the last one. And, and now we're seeing that they uh, they will be, you know, those numbers have almost flipped in favor of Biden. And I think the, uh, the management of this crisis and, and some of the tone uh, about how uh, seniors are being uh, cared for uh, has not worked well for the Republicans. And uh, we'll see how the, uh, the response shakes up. Before the Iranian tweet uh, you just talked about, I did see a presidential tweet talking about how, uh, how he'll take good care of seniors. So I think there's, there's concern in the White House about those numbers with seniors. All right. Uh, Dan, doesn't don't most of these elections, this is my last question, don't most of these elections come down to money? And Donald Trump has way more money than Joe Biden at this point. And 
so do I understand a lot of the Democrats around the country who are running. Uh, uh, is your is this a, is this an election that could go? Uh, I mean, uh, be a Democratic Party sweep, or what's your call at this point? Does it always follow the money? Well, the money is interesting, and it also the the Republicans definitely have an advantage in their voter data program over the Democrats. Right now, what does that trying, mean? Why uh, get out the vote? The ability to take people who come to rallies or go to Trump websites and then turn them into a, a data point and feed them information and then and then work to get them out to the polls in November. Uh, okay, that's, that's that's been a big thing for them. Uh, Democrats, though, like you said, Biden is not doing well on the fundraising, but a lot of Democratic congressional incumbents uh, or those challenging, uh, they're doing well in fundraising against uh, you know vulnerable Republican senators. So the, the Democrats definitely have uh, momentum behind them, but not money. So we'll have to see how money versus momentum shakes out in, so, in the overall picture. Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress and the senior political analyst on The Farcast. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to come back with Mona Mahijian from Alliance Global. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Thank you for joining us on this week's Farcast. Every week, we bring you experts and insiders to give a deeper understanding of our changing world. If you would be interested in Michael Farr delivering a presentation on the economic forecast for 2021 and beyond, please contact me, Harry Jennings, at 202-530-5608 or email me at hjennings at farmiller.com. In the past, Michael has delivered presentations at such venues as the Palm Beach Chamber of Commerce, the YPO Economic Summit, and the University of Delaware Economic Forecast. We are booking now for late 2020 and early 2021 for events where Michael will share his views into the recovery from the pandemic, including the consequences of the stimulus and the opportunities for investors. Reserve your date now on Michael Farr's speaking schedule. And now, back to Michael and the Farcast. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, terrific segment there with Dan Mahaffey, particularly as we got some news breaking from President Trump suggesting that he has ordered the U.S. Navy to shoot uh, down any ships harassing U.S. naval ships uh, in the Middle East. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out and if that has an effect on markets today. Today is Wednesday, April the 22nd, 2022, and we have a Farcast fan favorite. We get notes from you all how much you've enjoyed uh, our next guest. Mona Mahijan is the chief U.S. investment strategist from Allianz Global Investors. She's been terrific to appear with us in, on the Farcast before. We always learn so much when Mona's on. Mona, welcome back. We're glad you're with us. Thank you, Mike. Hope you're safe and healthy out there. We, we are, and, and we hope you are. And, 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 and Mona, where are you and how are you getting through all of this mess? Yeah, you know, I am located in North New Jersey. Our office in New York City is, of course, um, closed for now. 
I'm at home with, with two fairly young kids. I got a first grader and a fourth grader, so helping them through that situation. Wow. And then my husband, yeah, is is actually in in the medical field. He's a cardiologist, um, have not has not yet seen frontline action, but he may have to given how overwhelmed our ICUs are. So uh, we're hoping the PPE situation and, and the broader health situation starts to stabilize soon. But so far, wow. everyone's healthy and happy. And well, looking well, forward to a good discussion. Well, we, we, we know, now wait a minute, we know that you are a fabulous uh, investment strategist. How are you at home schooling? <laughs> you know, my son is much better the, at Zoom and all these technologies than I am. So I'm learning from him, you know, how to share my <laughs> screen, how to put these backdrops on. So I can, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, we, we, we all need a 10-year-old IT person, I think, is the yes, lesson yes. Uh, for, for these, for these uh, social isolations. All right, uh, Mona, I've read through your notes. Absolutely fascinating your thoughts on uh, where we are, but but tell tell our listeners where you think we are in terms of the economy uh, and and earnings and markets and and how you think markets are valued right now relative to the economy and what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe I'll start a little bit on where we are from the health situation and then delve into the economic and market situation. Perfect. You know, Perfect. Yep. And you know the the coronavirus globally now over two point five million cases. Uh, total cases in the U.S. have now surpassed any country globally, so over 800,000 cases here. Uh, behind the U.S. is actually a number of um, European and Middle Eastern countries, so Spain, Italy, Germany, France, U.K., Turkey, Iran. Notably, China has now fallen to ninth on this list. Um, what we're seeing here in the U.S., there is hope that we're getting a continued flattening of the curve, um, especially in hotspots like New York. So if you look at those IHME models, they indicate the U.S. peaked around April 14th. And in New York, the peaks also have thought to have occurred on April 15th. Um, what markets are looking for, one, the promise of medical therapy, you know, including the Gilead remdesivir. There's also right. the hope for the hydroxychloroquine, convalescent plasma. Uh, the goal there is really to have a therapy in place by summer ahead of a potential second wave of infections in the fall. But of course, you know, the more all-encompassing solution would be a vaccination. That's not likely to be in place for another 18 to 24 months. Mm -hmm. uh, we've also in the backdrop or in the background heard increased momentum behind reopening the U.S. economy. So the administration unveiled its proposal for three-phase reopening dependent uh, on a state-by-state -state basis really on whether the state is declining in its rate of infections and whether it has a plan to increase testing. Now, while the health backdrop seems to be stabilizing somewhat, you know, the economic devastation from this pandemic seems to be just beginning. Uh, last week, we got another 5.2 million jobless claims figure. This comes on top of the 6.6, 6.6, and 3.3 in the three weeks prior, bringing total jobless claims in just four weeks to an unprecedented 22 million, so nearly an 18% unemployment rate. Um, keep in mind, these are unemployment figures we haven't seen since really the Depression era in the late 1930s and 1940s. So, wow. you know, the U.S., which is really a consumption-based economy, um, right. when we do ultimately reopen, it'll be difficult to see how consumption resumes at it, as it had pre-crisis. Of course, one, it'll be hard for those who are unemployed to find a new job, at least right away. 
And then two, those consumption levels overall may remain depressed and cautious. Mona, let me let me ask just as on the unemployment, Mona, uh, we have numbers coming out this week and next week and the following Mm -hmm. week. uh, Twenty two million. Are we going to do you all think we're going to continue to see these five and six million uh, week uh, a week claims? When does that start to level out and how high does that number ultimately get through this period? Yeah, so I think that this week's estimate is for another four and a half million. We do think we ultimately start to plateau. Um, probably uh, that 6.6 was a peak, but we look we are looking at unemployment rates in the 20% range when this is all said and done. Um, and how many how many people will that be? We're at 22 million now. We add another four million is 26 or 27 million at the end of this week. Where, where does that yeah, number go? We, we think it goes to over about 30 million total. So we probably will start to see a plateau. Maybe we fall back to the 1 million range on an ongoing basis until we, you know, hopefully stabilize. Um, as and that's a, that's about economy. 20%. What's that's about 20% of the U S workforce. Yes. About 20% of the U S workforce unemployed. You know, there's a hope that when we do reopen a portion of those jobs do come back. Um, and we could ultimately be in the 10 to 12% unemployment range when this is uh, you know, all said and done over the next six month period. Still well above the three and a half percent range. We, we were pre-crisis. So um, you, think six months, you think six months from now, we could go from uh, 30 million unemployed to 15 million unemployed. We can get 15 million, that extra 15 million back to work six months from now? You know, six months may be ambitious. Uh, six to 12 months may be likely. Uh, okay. But keep in mind, there are a number of packages. Uh, you know, obviously, part of that 22 to 30 million, there are hopes that a lot of those employees are furloughed and still um, applying for jobless claims or, you know, filling out that survey. And so they could have jobs waiting for them. There's also hope that there are things like the infrastructure package where there will be jobs created even for those that are laid off in other sectors. So, um, Mona, and then uh, some of those restaurants. And, yep. uh, so my, my question here is if we see that number go from uh, 30 million unemployed to 15 million unemployed, and that's going to be 10 percent of the U.S. workforce, and, and we're still going to perhaps be, have a 10 percent unemployment figure uh, still a year from now, uh, does that basically negate the arguments for a V bottom? And how do you see at Allianz the sort of recovery as you forecasted yeah. in the U.S.? Yeah. So, you know, look, the broader question seems to be, um, one, what's been different this, this crisis or this downturn versus other well, one thing we're talking about is the size and the speed of the fiscal and monetary response. And there's been really no question about that. From a monetary perspective, the Fed has come in all in. Um, they have committed close to $6 trillion of st- stimulus, and that includes innovative solutions, really, like buying municipal bonds, buying IG and high-yield bonds. Uh, and that comes on top of the fiscal response, which is now close to $2.8 trillion. So when you think about the total there, uh, $8 trillion of stimulus, close to 40% of GDP. Um, that's unprecedented when you think about other crises. And in 08, we got similar responses from the Fed, but it took some time until we ultimately got there. In this case, we're going all in right away. And that's clearly provided support to the markets, at least the financial markets. 
Um, we're seeing that with the S&P, you know, we are now about 23 or 24% off that March 23rd lows. So we've come very far, very fast. Our overall view is that right now the risk reward is probably not as compelling in equities. And actually, fixed income may be a little bit more interesting given the back uh, stop by the Fed. But, you know, when we consider earnings may fall this year, 15 to 20% in 2020, even if you put a very favorable rebound, a 10% rebound in 2021, and you apply, you know, a generous 17 times multiple to that, that puts us at 2,400 to 2,600, depending on what you think this year, uh, on the S&P. And that's still about 10% down below current levels. Uh, but what we are saying is from a market perspective, you know, any bottoming process we see in the weeks or months ahead may actually be an opportunity for investors to really position themselves for what we're calling a post-COVID-19 world. Um, and so that story may be very specific, keep in mind, rather than you know, market data. And I'm happy all to right, talk so th- through. So three questions all of a sudden, because that was a terrific amount of information. Just absolutely. I always learn so much when I talk to you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, of course, we're talking to Mona Mahijan from Alliance Global Investors, uh, who is their uh, chief U.S. Uh, investment strategist. Uh, so, Mona, you, what you just said, to be clear, is stocks don't look cheap now, but uh, they may look cheaper in the future, and that will provide an opportunity for investors. And then I've got a question about the Fed. Did I get that much right? That is a great summary. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I, I, look, I'm, I'm kind of slow, and I take notes along the way. I don't want to miss any of these important points. Um, all right. When you talk, when you you mentioned six trillion dollars at the Fed, uh, basically, are you are you talking about the four trillion that was already on their balance sheet plus the two point three trillion they've added that takes them now over six trillion, or did I miss a few trillion in there somewhere? Yeah, that's a that's the rough way to look at it. You know, I think all their SPVs or special purpose vehicles, et cetera, um, will fund roughly that six trillion amount. One of the criticisms I've heard, Mona, of 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 the uh, of basically of the government's solution, which is, and, and people have said, uh, you know, a lot of investors and every economist I've talked to have said, boy, this was the right thing to do. The federal side of the fiscal side of the house flooded the markets with money. The Fed took a nuclear approach and has flooded the markets with money. The criticism is money does not get people back in hotel rooms, restaurants, and on airplanes. How does that money solve the economic dip? Yeah, and no, it's a fair point. And, you know, that money also doesn't help stop a virus or create a solution to a virus. I think what it does provide, and Secretary Mnuchin had laid out a number, roughly 10 weeks, at least from the fiscal side, of uh, cushion or a bridge to the economy. I guess the hope is, and that would bring us towards the end of May, um, that between now and then we start to reopen, we start to hopefully think about a medical therapy coming close to um, being approved. And, uh, but, but there is a broader question that you're bringing up here. Will it really be enough? Will we have to do more? Right. And with a 10 to 15% unemployment rate, um, perhaps, you know, I think most of us are coming to terms with the fact that we won't get a strong V-shaped recovery, at least in the second half of 2020. Uh, I do think once there is some sort of therapy that provides confidence to consumers that they can go out again and, and resume consumption as they had been, 
you do get a stabilization. But also keep in mind, you know, markets also look at what we call the second derivative. So if the pace of the slowdown starts slowing, yes. so like you're yes. talking about, yes. and unemployment figures start slowing in, in their decline, then markets will start to become more comfortable with the idea that we're going in the right direction. So what we really need to see is that pace of slowdown start to pause and maybe even you start getting uh, nominal growth as well. And, and how long does that take, Mona? When do you think we begin to see that slowdown and that bit of a turn? Yeah, so I mean, we're looking towards the second half of 2020. We still yeah. see third quarter growth in the economy as negative. Um, but we could see uh, slightly less negative in Q4. We do think by okay. that point, we'll start to get um, you know, a, a good sense of how the economy shapes out. Now, there are a lot of unknown factors. Obviously, if we get a second wave of infections come fall, which I know a lot of the medical ex experts are pointing to, that could throw a wrench in the entire flow or entire trajectory of the economy. But barring that situation, um, as we're seeing it right now, we should start to see a stabilization by Q4 of 2020. Um, and 2021 is still quite an unknown. Like we, we're talking about for now, if we give generous upside, um, the S&P still looks like it may you know, have to come down somewhat in terms of valuation. So not a home run yet. This is so helpful and absolutely fascinating. Uh, finally, uh, Mona, and we're so grateful for your time this morning and that you'd agree to come on with us. And oh, it, it, it's, it's so helpful so for so many of our listeners, which now actually is a, is a global audience as we track this, which is thank you for our global listeners, too, on the forecast. Uh, uh, as we have individual investors who are suffering through this, you have a kind of interesting barbelled strategy. You've referred yeah. to it in your notes as a barbell. Would you describe it? And, and could you, uh, and, and, and remember that I'm a little bit slow. Uh, so if you can <laughs> keep it, 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 you know, sort of some more simple terms. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We, we've, got, we've got folks who are certainly scared of this market, who want to know what to do with their 401ks. Uh, wh what are you suggesting at Allianz, and if we yeah. can? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, like you said, we, we think about risk in a barbell approach. Um, and when you think about your own assets, we say on one hand, you should continue to have some defensive assets in your portfolio. This includes areas like U.S. Treasuries, like gold, like the dollar, and now certainly like high quality investment grade bonds. Uh, but on the other hand of this barbell, we look for risk in areas that we really think about could benefit in a post-COVID-19 world. So some sectors that we like one, the rise of the food delivery services and online retail. So think about yes. Amazon here. You know, certainly er those players that are able to offer that efficiently will be winners. In technology, there are certainly a number of trends for a more stay-at-home world. So we all need better Wi-Fi services. So 5G comes to mind. Um, companies will really need better cloud computing, cybersecurity solutions for a more work-from-home workforce. And then that entire complex around, you know, e-gaming, video conferencing, remote education, we think has secular themes or secular legs to them. Uh, I'll also mention briefly the healthcare space, another one we like, you know, clearly telemedicine will become a bigger part of physician services. I've seen it myself. Um, but the need for also medical equipment, device it, devices, testing, uh, the pharmaceutical players, especially those involved with the therapies and the vaccinations will be critical. Um, and then really this whole trend towards the use of um, hand sanitization, antibacterial face mask solutions may emerge yeah. as well. 
Yeah. Globally, we think China as well could be interesting. Keep in mind, they were the first to get into this crisis, probably the first to reemerge. We've already seen their financial markets stabilizing somewhat. And then we're also talking about, um, for those that really have a longer-term horizon, there are certain markets that have been dislocated or, or priced to distress levels. And we'll, you know, some examples include airlines and perhaps certain parts of that energy complex as well. And then finally, I'll just mention that, you know, we, we do think in this environment, you know, active management seems like a little bit of a must as we navigate this. Uh, certainly companies will win and lose through this downturn across asset classes. Uh, some of those index and passive strategies, they're, you know, great in some environments, but in this environment could expose investors to potential, you know, underperformers or even defaulters. So it's, it's critical to just make sure you're thinking about making some active bets too, as we navigate and reemerge from this pandemic. Um, but overall, we continue to believe that longer term, the health of the U.S. economy will not be fundamentally derailed. Society will move forward, you know, albeit with much more caution and awareness around health and safety. But when we do stabilize, you know, we think we'll be in an environment where asset prices, valuations have come down. Those investors like us who had been looking for better, you know, risk reward opportunities will, will be um, rewarded. Mona, we can't thank you enough. What terrific information from Mona Mahijan, Chief U.S. Strategist from Allianz Global Investors. Mona, we hope that your first grader and fourth grader uh, are, are, are uh, staying entertained and, and continuing with their educations, and your uh, physician cardiologist husband is, is, is there, uh, also helping the great cause and the people of New York. Please be safe, and thank you so much for being on the forecast. Absolutely. Thank you, Michael, and you too. And for everyone listening, please stay safe and healthy out there. This is a health crisis first and an economic and, and market crisis second. So thanks, Michael. Have a great one. Thank you, Mona. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another forecast. Terrific to have you with us. We are so grateful for each of you. And please know uh, that you are in our thoughts and in our prayers that you are staying safe and healthy and well as we try to navigate each week as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Send us a note. Tell us if there's an area you'd like us to cover. Uh, we'll get to it. Harry Jennings is, uh, is responding uh, to all of your notes uh, when we get them as best he can. We get a lot of notes, folks, so don't hesitate. Uh, we are, we are trying to do our, our best for you. Uh, we appreciate all that you do for us. For the forecast uh, from Naples, Florida, I'm so grateful to each and every one of you. Please stay safe. I'm Michael Farr. See you next week. Thank you for joining us on this week's forecast, and a special thanks to Michael's guests, Dan Mahaffey and Mona Mahajan. The forecast is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all major podcast platforms. We are with you every week. Please subscribe and share with a friend. Knowledge is the best tool in times of turmoil. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at forecast at farmiller.com. Let us know what questions you have and what topics you'd like us to cover as we move on with our weekly shows. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that the past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any index, fund, manager, or strategy. 
And before you make any investment decision, we strongly recommend you consult with a financial professional to determine what may be best for your individual needs and, and your goals. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me, H. Jennings, at farmmiller.com. Whether you're considering changing your manager or just concerned about your investment future and want to discuss your goals, we are here to help. Drop me a line and I'll be happy to put you in touch with one of our professionals. We'll be back with you next week with more experts and insiders. Go beyond the headlines with the Farcast, Wall Street, Washington, and the world.